Let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, uh, speak to us now. Encourage us. Uh, bless us. Fill us with your spirit. Amen. Christianity is wonderful, isn't it? I mean, if it's true, and there's always a logical possibility that it isn't right, the claims of Christianity and the Christian life are absolutely amazing. We have, uh, we have hope of eternal life where all our tears are washed away and, and justice triumphs over injustice and death is defeated. We have a promise of forgiveness in the presence. We have a promise of all our shame being taken away, of all our relationships working properly. We have a deep, intimate, immediate experience of the God of the universe. It's extraordinary, right? But it's also hard, isn't it? Christianity's hard at times because life is hard, isn't it? Why is that? Why is life so hard? Well, we're on a journey, aren't we? We're on a journey, the Bible says, from, from the wilderness that we're in to the promised land. We're not there yet. All these great benefits and all this wonderful stuff that God has in store for us isn't all ours now. And on this journey, we suffer and we struggle. We have miscarriages. We have misunderstandings in relationships. Marriages end. Cancer diagnoses come our way. Work is unsatisfying. And then, that's just the common stuff of life, right? That's what we all get. But then, if you're a person of faith, you add on to that a whole another level of challenge as well, don't you? Because not just is life hard, but you're also trying to hold in tension this idea that there's a good, loving God who's supposed to be with you and th sorting all your stuff out in the midst of this, aren't you? So it's, it's a challenge. Now listen, uh, in the midst of this and on this journey, one of the temptations you and I face is as we go through this journey and as we face the hardships, we get to the point where we just slowly give up on following Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? Mostly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't wake up, you don't, you don't go charging along full of faith and love and enthusiastic about Jesus, full of your first love, and then one day you wake up and go, I'm giving it all up. What happens is slowly, life just pushes down on you. And the, the, as the, the, the Book of Common Prayer says, the changes and chances of this fleeting world bear down on us. And so what happens is we just slowly drift. Where once we love Jesus more than the opinions of others. Over time, what we find is, do you know what? We just get tired of being misunderstood. And so we get seduced and we drift into saying, what really matters is what other people think of me. I just, I just want to be liked. I just want to be loved. I just want to be accepted. We get seduced by our wealth, don't we? 
And you know what happens is we, I don't know about you, but when I became a follower of Jesus, I was 15 years old. I had no money. And, and, and the, probably the highlight of my spiritual fervor was when I was at university. Probably true for many of us. What's one of the things that's true about us at university? We have no money. We don't worry about money. It's not an issue. We're just full of zeal for Jesus. And we're going to take the world for Jesus. And we're so on fire. And then what happens? You know, you just like, uh, you get a job. And you start earning money. And then you reproduce. And then you have kids and they cost money and then you earn more money and then maybe you buy a house and and over time you know isn't it over time what happens is the the money the the lure of this the enticement of a fully funded retirement which is not a bad thing in and of itself and and upgrading our house and upgrading our kids education and upgrading our holidays and slowly what we find is do you know what at the core of my being i actually start to love money just a little bit more than i love jesus and i've drifted i've drifted <laughs> status security personal peace sexual fulfillment, professional success. All these things cause us to drift. Our own physical ailments can cause us to drift away, can't they? When your your life becomes just uh, an ongoing conversation about all the things in your body that aren't working as well as they used to work. And that's just the focus slowly is there and, and you've drifted and suddenly, suddenly your life isn't centered around Jesus. He's not the one you love more than anything else in the world. He's there for sure. I'm not saying he's not, but boy, it just gets harder and harder and harder to follow him. I was listening, talking to a friend in Canada who uh, was telling me the story of uh, uh, her father who had been in ministry for 30 years pastoring a church and is now not going to church anymore he's just drifted in full-time professionally religious ministry after 30 years he's gone you know what the thing that's caused him to drift is the amount of pain and heartache that God's people have caused him and just the cynicism that seeps in as you go this exercise and organized religion has just caused him to move away from his love for Jesus and he's like no still Still calls, still calls himself a Christian, but he doesn't actually want anything to do with God's people. And you know what? He's, he's drifted. And this is not an experience that is unique to us. This is, was the experience of the Christians in the first century when this letter was written to them. Because they were being tempted to drift. They were under pressure. They were urban Christians living in a pluralistic, affluent city. And they'd come to faith in Jesus. And now that faith far from making everything better and wonderful and brilliant, was actually adding another whole layer of, of challenge to their lives because they were being persecuted for their faith, they were being rejected for their faith, and they were starting to think, think to themselves, you know what, maybe life was better before I became a follower of Jesus. Maybe I don't have to go to church. Maybe I can be, I can be spiritual and religious without all this intensity and this focus of, on Jesus. And, and the book of Hebrews is written to those people and to you and to I in exactly that situation to encourage us and to exhort us and to say to us, don't drift, don't drift. Now, uh, what's the strategy? If, if the, major, the major focus of the book is this, major, the, the major exhortation is don't drift, 
How do we stop ourselves drifting? Well, you fix your eyes on Jesus. This is the answer to drifting. And this is what the book of Hebrews is going to do. As Kath said in her introduction, the whole of the book of Hebrews is going to paint a picture for us and in, of Jesus and encourage and exhort us every step of the way to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. Don't take your eyes off him because when you take your eyes off Jesus, you start to drift. You know? people's approval you, you know you stop looking at jesus and i look at other people what they think of me like oh that's a little more appealing than jesus or money or sex or whatever it might be and book of hebrews says look at, and it's going to tell us to fix our eyes on jesus and the, the rhetorical or um the the strategy of encouraging us to fix our eyes from, on jesus is not guilt it's not to say, well, you bad person, you've been drifting, bash you over the head. And it's full of warnings, but the warnings don't serve to evoke guilt. That's not the strategy that moves us. Do you know how Hebrews moves us to fix our eyes on Jesus? Very cleverly, it does it by showing us how wonderfully, how wonderful Jesus is. And in particular, by showing us uh, who or what he is and what he has done. That's the whole of the book of Hebrews. Don't drift. Rather, look at Jesus. And here's what Hebrews is going to do. It's going to show us over and over again how superior Jesus is to anything else. And he's going to show us what he's done for us and how what he's done for us is better than anything else in the world. So here's my little, uh, my little summary of the book of Hebrews. Three symbols that, you can, that will help you. Okay, so the first is a chi, which is a Greek letter for Christ. So Christ is greater than fill in the blank. That's it. Christ is greater than. So love him more. How do, we, how do we learn to love Jesus? Well, we, we see how wonderful and good he is and what he's done for us. And that's what moves us, moves our affections. And we keep studying that. We keep looking at Jesus. And it puts everything else in perspective. So uh, this is how the book begins. This is how the book uh, continues. And this is how the book ends. Look how it begins. Uh, it starts off by answering this question, uh, who is Jesus? In summary, uh, one of the commentators has called this section here nosebleed Christology. Christology is the study of Jesus, the doctrine of Christ. And it's so exalted. It's so you're up in the stands. You're in the nosebleed section of the stadium looking down on this massive picture of Jesus. And what do we see about Jesus in this section, right? We see that um, he, Jesus, is... Uh, God's final word and he is God's perfect self-expression. Look at this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. Okay, great. So your Jewish background, you understand God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, 
these last days, that's, that's the last days, by the way, are any time from the resurrection of Jesus on until he returns. So um, we're all living in these last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, okay, whom he has appointed. So God has spoken to us by his son, uh, through whom he uh, appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God's final complete self-revelation and self-expression of himself to us. What does that mean? about our understanding of Jesus. It means a few things. The first thing it means is this. Why should you keep fixing your eyes on Jesus? Because that Jesus is where you encounter God. There is no abstract God behind Jesus. The only place, according to the book of Hebrews, where you and I are actually going to encounter the full self-revelation and self-expression of the one true God is in the face of Jesus Christ. That's it. Uh, Now, that's a radical thought, right? That's a radical thought. I tried to draw this at the 9 o'clock service with moderate degrees of failure, um, but I'll try try a different version here. Uh, What we often do... When it comes to God, is you, you go around in our world, most people, when you speak to them, they have some sense of God or spirituality or some such stuff, right? So they say there's some, there is some God or higher power up here, right? Um, but this God, you can't really know. You, you, you know you've, it's just there. But then there are all these other kind of manifestations of God, right, that we can get to know. So you, and you can stand here, and we can, think, uh, we can think abstractly about this being, but, you know, in the end, we can't really know God as God is in him, her, or itself. What we've really got is, well, we can connect with these things. So, you know, your experience of God could be veganism. I mean, you know, when you speak to the... I experience God in, you know, I don't know, carrot sticks or whatever it is, you know, or, or Gaia theology, you know, environmentalism in the world. You might expect, well, I experience God in, um, you know, in the teachings of Buddha. And it's just, you know, that's, and, I, and you might experience God in Christianity, right? You might experience God in the teachings of the Quran, in Islam. Uh, actually, and you might the, the, you might experience God in in the mall. That's actually the um, the main object of worship and dominant religion in our culture. Actually, it's consumption, right? So, all the things that we look to from God historically, we now find in the mall. And and you know what? We're all they're all basically the same. We're all you know. You 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 do Islam. I do Christianity. You shop. They're all basically connected to the same God, right? That's, and, and look, the deal in Australia and in Canada and in most of the developed world these days is it really, and actually the true in Rome when this was written as well in the ancient world, it doesn't matter what you believe uh, about, it doesn't matter what you believe about all this stuff as long as you're a good citizen, because it's all relative, like they're all connected to the same God and you're all free to believe whatever you want to believe and, and they're all worshipping the same God in the end. So you can be a good Christian as long as you don't think that, um, 
as long as you don't think that Christianity is the only way. But the book of Hebrews says exactly that. And in fact, the whole Bible. In fact, Jesus makes exactly this point. Jesus says, this whole construct is fundamentally flawed. It's not the way the world works. In fact, the way the world works is it says, you know what? Uh, There is God and there is us. And do you know what's happened? This God has come to us and perfectly revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So this is God the Son has come, and in the person of the Son has actually revealed himself into our head, into our hearts, and made himself completely accessible to us. All the other constructs are really pointing nowhere. They may be trying to get to here, but actually what the book of Hebrews is going to say is actually the only way a Buddhist is going to get to know the God who really is, is through Jesus. The same for a Muslim, the same for a radical environmentalist, and the same for a 21st century consumer. Uh, now, that's a challenging thought right there. This is one of the reasons. By the way, this is not new. This challenge, the challenge of this kind of exclusivism is not new. Uh, it was why the, f- the Christians in the first century were persecuted. They were regarded by the Romans as atheists because they denied the truth of all the other gods and said the only god there is is Jesus. It's very arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> it's very arrogant. Well, no, no, actually, it, it's, it's a claim about the way the world really is. It's, it's no less arrogant than this picture. This picture of inclusivism and pluralism pretends to be humble, but it's just as arrogant, because, but the arrogance is hidden. You see, the arrogance is here that says this person alone, or us actually standing here from our vantage point, we really understand as 21st century uh, pluralist liberals, we understand that all religions really are the same. <laughs> and no, no, actually the religions themselves make exclusive claims and that's the way it is. God, Jesus didn't come to the world and say, listen, I'm one path to God. The book of Hebrews doesn't say that Jesus is one word from God to humanity, but you can find your other words. This is hard. I'll tell you why it's hard, because there's a lot in the Bible and a lot in Christianity that actually is difficult and feels culturally, ooh, like I don't like that. There's a lot of people in the world, for example, um, I don't know if you've encountered these, who love parts of the teaching about Jesus, and I do as well. Jesus says a lot about justice. You go, yes. He says a lot about serving the poor, and you go, yes. He says a lot about forgiveness, and you go, yes. And then he says stuff like this, that he's the, he is God, and, and we go, no, I don't like that. Ah, no, 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 God, that, you, you got that wrong, Jesus. You're really smart about justice and about forgiveness and about poverty, but you're really dumb when it comes to metaphysics. The thing about any relationship, that's not the way any relationship works. You see, for any authentic relationship to exist, we have to deal with the givenness of the other. 
We have to allow them to be who they are. The book of Hebrews says, and the Bible says, this is who Jesus is. This is who God is. And if you want a relationship with God, you have to allow him to be who he is, even if there's parts of him that don't fit well with our cultural preconceptions. See what I mean? Um, I don't know if you've ever... If you've ever, this is the way, if, if you've ever, well, you've been in a relationship with someone, and uh, this is the way marriage works, by the way, or long-term friendship works. When you initially meet someone, you're incredibly optimistic. Um, you, you, firstly, you, see, you only see all the good things. When you fall in love, they're all wonderful, and they're all good, and they're all fantastic, right? Just beautiful. And often in marriage, particularly, we get attracted to people who are very different to ourselves. But those, those differences are wonderful and introduce some spark into the relationship. Oh, that's fantastic. And then you spend the next 20 years trying to change the other person. <laughs> And then what you discover through the course of your marriage is there is a certain givenness to the other person that they are not, it's, they're not going to change. You have to learn to love them and accept them as they are, not as you want them to be. And it's only when you fall out of love with your projections and your fantasies and your dreams of what you can make them be and you learn to love them as they are that you actually fall in love and have the foundation for a, you know, a long-lasting marriage. That's how, all, that's how friendships work. That's how all relationships work. That's how God works with us. So the book of Hebrews is going to say to you, fix your eyes on God as he is to you in Jesus Christ. Embrace him as he is with all the challenges and the difficult bits. Abandon your early fantasies and preconceptions about God and learn to trust him as he is. and Follow him as he is. Not as you want him to be, not as I want him to be, but as he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. So, that was the introduction. Um, I jest. Uh, look what else. Look how. Look. Look what else Jesus is. He is God's son, isn't he? He's God's son. And, uh, and as God's son, remember this is the assumption, this is, uh, as God's son, this, if this is the summary, Jesus is greater than, what's he greater than in this next section? Verse 4. He's, he's greater than the angels. And you go, wow, that's amazing, Mark. I just needed to hear that because I think about angels all the time. No, you don't. You see, we live in a world that is essentially a lot of empty space. So one way to picture it, sorry, is this. Um, our worldview is essentially this. If we believe in there's a God, there's a God, and there's us, uh, and there's a whole pile of empty space between us and them. Uh, when this book was written, and in the first century, and in most cultures throughout human history, there is no such thing as empty space between us and God. In fact... Uh, this space is completely full. And you know what it's full of? It's full of spiritual beings and spiritual reality. It's full of angels. It's full of demons. It's full of God. There's no empty space. So, so there were detailed angelologies, angels, studies of the angels, and angels were massively important in the first century, massively important in Scripture. 
and massively important in the pagan religions. They were seen as intimate intermediaries between God or the gods and ourselves involved in our day-to-day lives. And the writer to Hebrews says, Jesus is superior to the angels, even biblical angels. Isn't that great? I mean, look at, look at how much better Jesus is than the angels. He's better than... He's, he's that, Jesus is, uh, is God's son in the way that the angels aren't. And he quotes the Old Testament. Um, in fact, Jesus is so much more superior to the angels that the angels worship him, right? He's so much more superior to the angels. We don't know about that first. But he's so much more superior to the angels that, that unlike the angels, Jesus is the, uh, is the king, Oh, my handwriting hasn't got King and ruler of all, isn't he? He is the one, your throne, God says about Jesus, your throne, oh God, will last forever and ever. So the writer is taking a psalm that was applied to God the Father, to Yahweh, and applying it to Jesus the Son to show how much greater Jesus is than the angels. He says, your, you, your kingdom will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice. Oh. God, Jesus is so great because you know what? He's a God of justice. And he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And God has set you above your companions. Jesus is above all the angels, above any other created being. That's how great he is. Guess what? He's also eternal and everlasting. Look at that, eh? His rule and reign and care is everlasting and eternal. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. The world is it's, it's wearing out. Have you noticed that? I mean, I notice it. My body, our bodies are wearing out. It's very annoying. Everything wears out. And, and in fact, the, the argument here is the whole, all of creation is wearing out. But guess what? The, this world that we think is so permanent and so long-lasting is just like a pair of worn-out old clothes compared to the infinite, everlasting timelessness of Jesus. Who's just It's like he's come in and this whole creation and everything, he's just rolling it up to chuck it in the laundry basket and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So fix your eyes on the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever because even when this world wears out, even when you have hardship and difficulty and life goes on a long time and the pain and suffering doesn't end, Jesus is still the same and his kingdom will last and will go on forever and ever. And he's the one who, he's the triumphant one. He triumphs over evil. (laughs) Unlike the angels, Jesus uh, is the one whose enemies become his footstool. This is an image from the ancient world where the the conquering king would uh, rest his feet on his vanquished enemies. That's good. Don't you think? I want Jesus to rest his feet on the enemy of modern day slavery. (laughs) That'd be good. I want Jesus to rest his feet on the enemy of domestic violence. It's been in the news this week. Gender-based violence kills uh, more women and children around the world than wars and, you know, tuberculosis, AIDS, uh, cancer combined. Gender, intimate partner violence, gender-based violence is an evil scourge. Um, and now I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Wish it would, but it hasn't for the last 
you know, 10,000 years of human history because there's something so woven into the soul of human beings that when we have power over other people, there are always going to be those who abuse it. It's tragic and evil when it happens in the church. It's despicable. It's awful. But let me tell you, I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus rests his feet on the enemy of, of domestic violence and gender-based violence, and it is no more. And the weak and the vulnerable are secure and protected forever and for always. That's good news. That's good news that Jesus is, uh, is so great. Now, given that he's so great, the text says don't drift away from him. Therefore, uh, do not drift away. But there's a problem, isn't there? Maybe there's not for you, but there is for me. There's a problem with this great vision of Jesus. And the problem is this. When I step into the presence of true greatness, my initial response, I'm both attracted to it and I'm repelled by it, aren't I? Because it makes me feel so profoundly inadequate. So when you listen to this great story of Jesus and how wonderful and extraordinary he is, how does that make you feel? as a moral, spiritual being. Ah, in all of our lives, when we come into the presence and experience of greatness, of true glory, we find that the glory of the other makes us feel incredibly unworthy. I remember this uh, in my theology, in my uh, university education. I, I did okay at school and university, and, and I went to study theology, and I thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to become a, I'm quite smart. I'm going, to, I'm going to read and think and write some really good theology. And then in first year at theological college, I started to read a fellow called Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth, one of the great minds of the 20th century, wrote a book called Church Dogmatics, Six Million Words, and I'm reading Barth. And I'm reading this and I'm reading this and there's slabs of untranslated Latin and German and French and it's profound. And you know what my experience is? I'm attracted to it. I'm like, oh my goodness. But what else am I thinking as I'm reading it? Woe is me. I am a bear of very little brain. <laughs> I'm never going to be great. I'm never going to be a carbot. I am so inadequate as a theologian. Who am I to even dare to think that I might possibly ever write anything about God that might be even vaguely useful? Because in the presence of the glory and the greatness of someone like Bart, my own ability is so feeble. Hmm. Uh, it happens, by the way, not just in this, every area of life. Um, I don't know if you know this, but all around Australia and the world, there are aspiring young church musicians become believers, become Christians at age 15, someone gives them a guitar and they start banging away, they learn their four chords and then they get up front and they start singing. Maybe they've gone to a school like St. Andrews where they've learned how to sing and they're in the choir and they've got a good voice and then they're up front in the youth group and they're singing away in their church somewhere, could be here, could be anywhere in the state, some small suburban church, even some medium-sized church and everyone goes, oh, you're just fantastic, you're such a great worship leader. Yes, I am. I'm singing away and, you know, doing my worship thing, and, and then eventually someone says, you know, you, you, are so, you should really look at doing this as a career. 
And they go, yeah, I should, man. I just, I want to serve Jesus. And I've got this great voice. They won't say this, but I've got this great voice. I'm getting all this encouragement. So I'm going to go and I'm going to study music and I'm going to become a worship leader. And so where's the best place to study contemporary worship? Oh, I've got a Hillsong because Hillsong's got a college. So you go to Hillsong College. And let me tell you, at every intake in a Hillsong College, you have a, you have a swarm of gifted, beautiful, wonderful young musicians who turn up and they get to Hillsong and they stand there and they start listening to the people who are already there who aren't even making the third or fourth or fifth string of bands and they realize they're never going to be as good as those and they come into the experience of the greatness and the glory and the amazing musicality of Hillsong and they go, woe is me. I'm a four-chord wonder who needs to just slink back to my little church in the suburbs or I can be a big fish in a little pond because I am nothing in the presence of this greatness. How much worse is it for you and I with God? When Isaiah, one of God's Old Testament prophets, experienced God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, and God came and he saw the angels in the temple, what did Isaiah say? Did he go, whoa, I'm so great, I'm experiencing God, this is fantastic. What did he say? He saw the glory, he glimpsed the glory of God, and his response was, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He became so aware of his moral and existential finitude and brokenness in the presence of the transcendent glory of God. So, how is Hebrews going to help us Fix our eyes on Jesus when Jesus is that glory of God. How's, he gonna, how's that going to encourage us and draw us in and not just leave us feeling completely morally and spiritually inadequate? We'll come back. No, I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how. Look at what Jesus has done. Verse Three, the second part of verse 3. Hidden away in all of what Jesus is, what has he done? He has provided purification for sins. That's what he's done. So the book of Hebrews is going to say Jesus is extraordinarily great and wonderful and glorious and magnificent. But you don't have to run or hide from them because in addition to being all of that, you know what he's done? He understands our finitude, our brokenness, our moral failings. And he says, I'm I'm going to provide purification for sins. I'm going to love you and I'm going to live for you and I'm going to die for you so that your failures don't have to exclude you from my glory. Isn't that amazing? Now, the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to unpack that. So let me give you just a hint of how it works. This eternal word of God, the way in which this eternal word of God provided purification for your sins, the way he addresses everything within us that would keep us away from God, that would keep us hiding and like Isaiah going, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. All of that stuff is addressed how the eternal word of God becomes eternally silenced on our behalf and in our place. See, what we deserve from God is silence, is being shut out. Solitary confinement is 
is torture because being cut off from human relationship is death. And what happens on the cross, the way this glorious Son provides purification for our sin is this eternal word experiences eternal silence as he cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does the father say to him? Nothing. Nothing. Deafening silence from all eternity. That's what we deserve. That's right. That's, that was the consequence, the, the, the inevitable outworking of our moral mess. Jesus, the eternal son who's been with God forever, he experiences that silence. Why? So that we can hear from God the Father the eternal, yes, you're forgiven. You're my child. Come in. He gets the silence. We get the welcome. That's what Jesus has done. So, therefore, the book of Hebrews is going to say, we must pay most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Pay close attention to it. Study it. We never... Listen, I don't, I've been a Christian... I became a follower of Jesus in 1985. What's that, 32 years? How did that happen? I still don't think I understand even a fraction of how extraordinary it is that the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God would be silenced and would die to purify me and draw me into the presence of God. I'm only beginning to get that. The only way we stay focused on Jesus and love him is as we pay cl- we study that. I mean, you know, go back to the Jesus is greater than. Here's, I'll just give you, if Jesus is greater than this, here's how it works. If I'm tempted to say, I just love money. Now, I would never say that out loud because I'm professionally religious. I'm not allowed to say that, but the Bible says we're all tempted to love money. So I can go, man, I just love money. I love the things that money can buy. I love the status and the security, and I love the way people think of me because I'm rich, blah, blah, blah. You know what Hebrews will say? Don't, don't. You know what? Compare money to Jesus. What's money ever done for you? Well, for a time, it'll give you safety and security. But let me tell you, did money ever die for you to purify you, to heal you, to restore you, to bring you into the very presence of God, to address all your deepest needs, and to do that forever and for always? Did money ever do that for you? Hell no. So Jesus is much greater than money. Study how the greatness of Jesus and his death for you on your behalf makes him far more compelling, far more wonderful, far greater than anything else in the world. Because guess what happens when you do that? You don't drift. You love Jesus and you get to put money or success or status in its right place. Money's not bad. It's just a terrible thing to love more than Jesus. But when you have it and you can use it for Jesus, it's a good thing. Jesus is greater than anything else in this world. And he loves you more than anything or anyone else in the world. Hey? That's what took him to the cross, is this extraordinary love for you. So, dear friends, uh, our journey as a church is to pay close attention to this to love Jesus more and more and more. 
And I'm just so excited that we can journey through this book of Hebrews. It is going to help us do that. And to build a church that does that. Part of a movement of God's people around the world who love Jesus more than anything in the world. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for this amazing uh, text of scripture that shows us so clearly how great and how wonderful you are, Jesus, and also shows us how much you love us. And I pray for us as a church that we will not drift. We won't drift from you, Lord, but we will love you and we'll pay close attention to this salvation that we have in you. And that as we do that, we will change the world with you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.